Welcome to Revelant, where we are revealing the relevant and revolutionary Word of God. I am your host, Mia Jani, and today we will be discussing who is your king. We will be coming from Acts, the 17th chapter, beginning at the first verse through the ninth verse, and it reads, Now when they had passed through Amphipolis and Apollonia, they came to Thessalonica, where there was a synagogue of Jews. Then Paul, as his custom was, went into them, and for three Sabbaths reasoned with them from the scriptures, explaining and demonstrating that the Christ had to suffer and rise again from the dead, and saying, This Jesus, whom I preach to you, is the Christ. And some of them were persuaded, and a great multitude of the devout Greeks, and not a few of the leading women, joined Paul and Silas. But the Jews, who were not persuaded, becoming envious, took some of the evil men from the marketplace, and gathering a mob, set all the city in an uproar, and attacked the house of Jason, and sought to bring them out to the people. But when they did not find them, they dragged Jason and some brethren to the rulers of the city, crying out, These who have turned the world upside down have come here too. Jason has harbored them, and these are all acting contrary to the decrees of Caesar, saying there is another king, Jesus. And they troubled the crowd and the rulers of the city when they heard these things. So when they had taken security, or bail, from Jason and the rest, they let them go. Here we have Paul and Silas. And they're passing through Thessalonica. And Thessalonica is a very important city because not only was it uh, the capital of the Roman province of Macedon or Macedonia in ancient Greece, but it was a major trade route between the East and the West. It was very prosperous and it, was a, it had a cultural reputation that uh, many people wanted to uh, come to Thessalonica. <clears throat> and so it was a pivotal place, a strategic location um, for the gospel message to be spread um, to other parts of the world. And later it would become uh, instrumental in establishing Oriental Christendom. So it's a very strategic location. And here Paul and Silas have come to Thessalonica where there is a synagogue of the Jews. And we know that in ancient times there must have been a lot of Jews in that, in that area who had probably come uh, to Thessalonica for trade purposes. Um, but when there's a lot of Jews in a certain area, then they establish a synagogue. And here in Thessalonica, there was a synagogue where Paul begins to preach um, for three weeks or three Sabbath days, uh, which was his custom, the scripture says. And as he's teaching, he is basically uh, expounding to them that through the Old Testament scriptures and the prophets that these all point to Jesus being the Christ, the promised Messiah. And he's done, done, he does this in such a way that it compels 
um, people to be converted to Christ. You know, those that had been serving Greek gods and you know, noble women, you know, he converts them over to, um, to serving Christ and recognizing Christ as the Messiah. And so, as they, as they have uh, come to this place, he's establishing an image. And the reason why he has to um, establish who Christ, who the Messiah is, and connected to Jesus is because there's an image that the, the Jews who had also known the scriptures would have had of Jesus. You know, they would have probably looked at him as someone who should look on outward appearance like the kingship of King Solomon, which was grandeur, right? You know, or a battling uh, king who was always victorious in battle. But here we have Paul explaining that the suffering servant is the Messiah. That the king who was meek and lowly and humble and suffered the death of the cross was, in fact, the promised Messiah. This wasn't the Jews' idea of a king. A king that appeared to be powerful, who could conquer all by force, not by bringing peace through stealing the demons within a person, was the type of king that they looked for. They looked for what most men judge by, the outward appearance, instead of the heart. I recall a scene in the movie Black Panther, just to give you an imagery of kind of what this looked like. And here you had two characters, main characters in this film. One was Killmonger, the character played by Michael B. Jordan. And then the other was T'Challa, who was the character played by the late um, Chadwick Boseman. May he rest in peace. But definitely, this scene was very powerful, wherein they're fighting for the throne. And Killmonger was severely injuring King T'Challa. He had stabbed him in the stomach, and he had also killed Zuri, the advisor. And as T'Challa fell to the ground in pain and agony, Killmonger looks around and asks, is this your king? He was taunting King T'Challa and vexing the others around him. And later on he'll say, he is supposed to protect you. And to me, there's similarities in, in, in King T'Challa and Jesus in the story of Black Panther, and I won't go into all of them. But Killmonger was definitely a type of the enemy. He was boastful and proud, full of anger and deception, and wanted revenge at all costs, was very fleshly. But this is the type of king that most people would think would be king. And this is the type of visual that I believe the Jews probably had of the coming Messiah, one that was going to, you know, by force, um, you know, just take over the kingdom, you know, and 
really establish himself again. But that's not how Jesus came. He was more like King T'Challa with a peaceful, kind, loving spirit. You know, and and this is the thing. King T'Challa at first wanted to handle things a little bit differently. He wanted to have a peaceful resolution because he knew what was the pain inside of Killmonger. And he says, put down your weapons. Let us deal with this another way. But Killmonger had, a, had other plans. And, and so like, like unto Jesus, who wants us to cast our cares on him, an humble servant of the people that sees the hurt and needs of others, we don't often look at that person as kingly. We look at the person who's kingly as the one who can boast about what they can do and how they can accomplish this and how they can solve a problem and how they can protect and what they can do. We don't look for the one that deals with the internal and shows a strength of character. And here we have a situation where Killmonger may have looked the part to the world of what it means to be a ruler or king or one who is full of self or walks around with arrogance and desires worship. This is how the enemy wants us to look for a king. He wants us to look for those who look powerful and strong, not an humble, weeping, meek, merciful, peaceful king that walks in righteousness and truth. The world doesn't want a king who learned obedience through the things he suffered, was without sin, took the sin of the world upon him, was despised by many, nailed to the cross, suffered, bled, and died to pay the penalty of sin for the sinner, and rose again, signifying the conquering of death. No, the world doesn't want a king that can change the heart of the most egregious sinner, like Saul, change his name to Paul, and cause him to love and advance the kingdom of God. The world wants, in fact, a king, a ruler, who can exemplify they are able to use force and boast greatly of their conquest and the things which they've done and the things that they will do, as the world wants to be assured that they will be okay by the hands of this king. So they look at the outward appearance and not at the heart. And we see the Jews in this text that didn't believe that Jesus was the Messiah. Why? Because he didn't look the part. But Paul is in the synagogue for three weeks presenting Jesus another way. And they're going through the scriptures and showing how Jesus is the Messiah. That Jesus is the Christ, the one that they knew would come into kingship, who would be the king of kings and the lord of lords, who wouldn't necessarily look the part, but would be, in fact, the king. And so they believe not. And being moved with envy, they wanted to silence Paul and Silas. And you may say, why moved with envy? What were they envious of? The 
the kingship of Jesus. See, ever since the fall of man in the garden, man has rebelled against God's kingdom, God's kingship, God's government. When the serpent beguiled Eve, he said to her that she would surely not die if she ate from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, which we know was a lie. But he told her that in fact, God knew that in the day she would eat of it, her eyes would be opened and she would be as God, knowing good and evil. And Eve, as we know, desired to be a God unto herself. So she ate from the tree and gave it to her husband, Adam. She wanted to self-govern. And from that day till now, sinful man has been rebelling against the kingdom of God, the kingship of God, the government of God, being tricked of Satan that self-government is best and that there's a need for man-made government. And thus they have desired and devised their own methods of governance, none of which will ever be sufficient to solve the world's issues the world's problems, none of which will ever produce a suitable ruler or true leader. They wanted self-government, and we still want self-government. And so who do we look to? We look to those who we imagine look the part of what we imagine kingship rulership, leadership looks like. Those that we feel can govern us. Those who can prove and show that they can protect us. Many times we look for, look for the killmongers, the boastful, the proud, the arrogant. And this is what man does. See, because man that was designed to rule on earth and take dominion over the earth and animals still has a desire to rule. But when that desire is perverted by Satan, it turns into rebellion against the kingdom of God, producing a desire to self-govern and to rule other people. And even though Jesus has and will return to bring order wherein man can partner with the kingdom of heaven to rule on earth. When Paul and Silas are expounding on Jesus being the promised Messiah, the Jews who understood that the promised Messiah would reestablish the throne of David were provoked. This would mean an end to their kingdom, their dominion, their self-governance, their governmental order, so that they would do any and everything to stop the rise of the kingdom of God. They were not liking the fact that multiple converts would begin recognizing Jesus as the king. They were not happy that so many who had once bought into the Greek gods and the way in which the world was operating, with Caesar as king. 
that they would now see a new person as king, King Jesus. They were not liking that. And isn't that what the enemy does? He wishes to silence the true messengers of Christ. He wants to make them look bad and weak and as if they cannot possibly be doing the right thing. And so these Jews plot with the underworld, the wicked, to come after Paul and Silas to silence them so that they can stop making these converts, stop changing the order of things. We have a man-made governmental system in place. We do not need for you to come, Paul and Silas, teaching about Jesus being the king. So they plot against them. Not only do they plot against them, but they bring in the underworld, the wicked, to come and help them. A mob is formed. And they come after and they're looking for Paul and Silas to stop them and those that were supporting them and helping them. See, the enemy has no new tricks. He did it to Jesus through Judas and he did it here in this text with Paul and Silas and he will do it to you if you're trying to advance the kingdom of God and magnify Jesus as king. This is why the Bible declares to us Blessed are they that are persecuted for righteousness sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And to rejoice and be exceeding glad, for great is your reward in heaven, for so persecuted they the prophets that were before you. You are in good company when wicked men form alliances to plot against you, ruin your name, to silence you, to say all manner of evil against you and seek to bring you before man-made government officials. You're in good company. And we see here in this text, when they could not find Paul and Silas, even though they had established a mob to go and look after them, they went looking for their supporters, the people who helped them. So they went to the house of Jason. When they got to the house of Jason, they couldn't find Paul and Silas. But this is where it gets good. Because they're going to tell off on themselves as to what is the crux of their issue with Paul and Silas. I mean, you would think they're just expounding in the synagogue, which should be the place of worship and the place where you're getting taught. right? That through the scriptures... Jesus is the Messiah. What, what's the problem with that? Why are they so angry that so many people began following Christ as a result of this teaching? Who is your king? See, the enemy has no new tricks. In today's time, as the gospel of the kingdom of God is being spread, the enemy will exploit your area of influence. He will seek to frustrate those who support you, to bring you out to the people, if you will, to stop the advancement of the kingdom of God in any way that he can. Especially when your king is Jesus, you have to expect there will be opposition their plans will not succeed. And so we see in the text that they went looking for Paul and Silas at Jason's house and they couldn't find them there. 
So they decided, we're going to take Jason. Because he helped Paul and Silas. He allowed them to stay at his home. And here's the crux of their envy. They say in the text, these that have turned the world upside down. How did they turn the world upside down? You know, weren't they just telling everybody that by the scriptures, Jesus was the Messiah? How is that turning the world upside down? What they're actually meaning is it's turning their world upside down because no longer can they self-govern no longer can it be about man-made government if Jesus is the king if Jesus is the king then their whole system of functioning has to change if Jesus is the king and they get more and more people to believe that Jesus is the king and the way that they operate can't go forth. And that's why they were so adamant about Paul, finding Paul and Silas. See, this is why the enemy wants to silence the people who are speaking out about Jesus being the king. Because he does not want his kingdom, the kingdom of darkness, to be overthrown. He doesn't want his world to be turned upside down. But his world has been turned upside down because Jesus snatched the keys. Hallelujah. And Jesus wants us to rise up and advance the kingdom of God and speak out and say that he is the king. To live out loud that he is the king. And you must expect that opposition's gonna come. But you will be like Paul and Silas, those that turn the world upside down. And so we see in the text that they go on and say, they're doing things contrary to the decrees of Caesar, saying that there's another king, one Jesus. See, it's always been a about kingship. Who is your king? There's a battle for who you allow to govern you. Will you self-govern or be governed by another man or Satan? Or you, will you be governed by God? See, the enemy got kicked out of heaven because he wanted to ascend above the heights of the clouds and make himself like the Most High God. And when that didn't work, he went to God's children and tricked them into desiring to be the same way. His MO has not changed. And this is why God hates pride, as it reflects a spirit that will not submit to the kingship of Jesus. And while innate in man is the desire to have dominion, without Christ, that desire is perverted. That desire for dominion and rulership is perverted and seeks to, instead of ruling over nature and animals to maintain the order of things, you want to rule over people and you want to self-govern. That's a 
totally contrary to the kingdom of God. So when Paul and Silas are recognizing Jesus as king through the scriptures, teaching people so, and getting converts, the unbelieving Jews become envious that their kingdom is being overthrown, that their world is being turned upside down, and so they conspire with the underworld to bring out Paul and Silas to expose them as being against Caesar. But when they couldn't find them, they went after his, their supporters, the ones that had helped them. And so they draw out Jason, who had let them stay in his house. But even that attempt failed because we see in the text that even though they put Jason in jail, they were able to make bail and he was released and all that were with him in his home. But what did they fear? They feared the spread of the gospel of the kingdom of God, that Jesus is king. Who is your king? See, it's important in today's climate to know who is your king. I am so thankful that Jesus is my king. It doesn't matter what leaders are in office. It doesn't matter what kings are in kingship. I serve the king of kings. I serve the Lord Jesus. Jesus is my king. He is a king that doesn't fit the part according to man-made standards, but is the only one worthy to rule. He is meek and lowly, and he intercedes on my behalf. He is the lover of my soul, the one who heals my broken heart, whose stripes heal me, who protects me from the enemy, who keeps me in perfect peace, who takes care of me and provides for me better than the sparrow who helps me to mount upon wings like an eagle and soar. He is the one who forgives my sin, rights my wrongs, helps me to forgive and love, and keeps me from stumbling. He is the one who took the keys of death and hell from Satan and gives me the keys to the kingdom and eternal life. He is my king. Who is your king?